Welcome to the Productize Podcast. We dive deep into technology, innovation, and entrepreneurial spirit. I'm your host, Andre Marquis, and today I'm thrilled to have Mike Vladimir, a renowned technology leader and innovator, joining us. Mike has an impressive track record from leading product innovation at LG Nova to mentoring future entrepreneurs at the Berkeley Haas Entrepreneurship Center. Recently, Mike launched a project called Nascent Startups, how to spend your first 100 days and $100 when you have an idea for a tech business. Mike, welcome. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. This is the first podcast I'm doing since starting the Nascent Startups pro- uh, project. So I- I've been thinking about this for a long time, really excited to share it with the world, really excited to be unproductized. I've listened to a couple episodes to prep so that... Uh, I have a sense of what we're going to be talking about, and yeah, just keen to get started. Woohoo, Mike! You've you've had a fascinating journey from your studies in electrical and computer engineering at, at Carnegie Mellon, actually, to your mm-hmm. MBA focusing on design and entrepreneurship at UC Berkeley. And um, we were talking the other day. You told me you had an international experience in Europe, working on a very exotic piece of hardware called microelectronical. Sorry, microelectromechanical systems um, that are little pieces of technology that use both electrical and mechanical functions, and they are part of everyday devices like, yep. uh, you know, the AirPods and you know, so so many pieces of technology that we now take for granted. But this is actually quite quite a, a novel thing. So, could you share? how this experience has shaped your approach to technology and innovation and starting maybe why you went to um, electrical and computer engineering in the first place. Sure. Um, I think I've always been fascinated with trying to understand how the world works. Um, I I know that I'm not alone in that curiosity, Uh, but it's really been... I think there's a huge part of me who's just very interested in like, how does the world work? What's, what's really important? Like, how, how do you make something happen if you want something to happen? Mm-hmm. Um, ages ago, uh, I saw a quote that kind of captured my own personal journey that I thought was really fascinating. Uh, so I'll, I'll just read the quote. Uh, it's a little long, but that, that it really gets at what I, how about it really maps out my journey. It was, it was really kind of interesting in terms of foreshadowing. So the, the quote, uh, it, of all things, I, I I like to read the Economist magazine, um, mm-hmm. and in the letters section, this guy just sent in this this letter uh, to the to the editor that just captured this whole thing for me. So the quote is: uh, "In essence, society works because of the dynamic interaction of five core disciplines that are searching for answers to different questions: science, what do we know? Technology, how do we use it? Economics, how much does it cost? Politics, who pays? And philosophy." What's the values involved and what does it all mean? And we need the wisdom to get the balance between the incomplete answers to all these questions reasonably right. And that kind of mapping of science, technology, economics, politics, philosophy, that that really in many ways has been my journey in the world. So, you know, when I was a teenager, I I was really interested in science and physics. And and it's like, you know, if you understand how physics works, everything else kind of flows. And then I, I realized that actually there's a lot more to it than that. Like physics, it's great to know, you know how electrons move or whatever, but you can't do anything with that knowledge per se. It's, it's how, how you actually use it, <laughs> um, which is the technology piece. Um, that's why we're able to speak right now, right? Like, like through the internet, you know, 
obviously there's a lot of physics underlying the internet, but without the technology uh, of actually taking the, you know, those moving electrons and using them productively, it's not going to work. But then the other piece of this, which took me a really long time to appreciate was economics. You know, just because you can build something doesn't mean it's affordable (laughs) and the affordability uh, of technology of anything is crucial. You know, if something costs a billion dollars, I can't afford it. If something costs a penny, I can afford it. And, you know, again, just using this simple podcast as a, as a way to like touch real life based on my experience, you know, it's, it's amazing that we're speaking, other people are listening to us and all of this is super affordable. This is, this is a very, very special world that we live in right now. You're saying we, we, we spent hundreds of euros to set up our, our studio. No, I, 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 yeah. I totally get your point here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Technology is now allowing us to do something that 20 years ago was essentially, you know, maybe 10 years ago, this would be, uh, you know, we would have to spend thousands and thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of uh, dollars to set up uh, a proper HD link between two cities in two different points of the world. And here yep. we are uh, speaking like we were just in front of each other uh, in Portland, where you're based at the moment, yep. right? And port, yeah. Uh, so I'm based in Portland, Oregon, on the west coast of the United States. You're uh, right now. Are, are you in Portugal? Yes, in Lisbon. Yeah. There you go. And so, you know, that that kind of combination of the science of understanding how the electrons work, moving that to doing something actually useful, like being able to send information around, and then taking it a step further and making it um, understanding like how do, how do we deliver that solution affordably. Um, all of those pieces kind of cascade to, to create this experience that we're having. And I think it's a really, it's something, the reason I'm saying this is uh, basically try to reflect on my ignorance. You know, when I was, if we would have had this conversation when I was 15 years old, I would have said, eh, all that matters is the physics. All that matters is the electrons. And I wouldn't have understood that like using it productively in technology mattered or having it be affordable mattered. And so now that I'm, you know, the way I like to work is I kind of like try to do things my own way. And then I find out that it, it breaks, like I can't get what I want. And then I go and try to figure out what's broken. And th- that's very much been my journey from science through engineering to, to business. Um, and I think, you know, your question of, uh, you know, what, what's been my journey, that, that that's definitely the, one of the, the main threads. Uh, another big thread um, I would say is, Microelectromechanical systems, MEMS, um, computer chips with moving parts. The 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 piece. So so just to be really specific, because most people don't know what MEMS are, even though you're you're probably listening to this on your phone. And if you, so when you hold your phone, there are MEMS components in that phone. So when you rotate your phone, um, the the phone magically knows which way is up. You know, like it knows where gravity is. So that's because there's a computer chip inside that is actually able to sense gravity, and it does that because it has moving pieces that. You know, move differently, just like everything in this world. Like if you're falling, if you're if you're, you know, fighting gravity, you're gonna fall, um, and that that chip reacts to the gravity. Um, so I actually built those chips, and I'd, I'd say another big piece of, of my journey has been that that interface. So the the electromechanical. How, how do you take this mechanical phenomenon of gravity and translate it into something electrical, where now we have a signal that we can use and process in in a much more robust way. Um, and so, 
yeah, there's something about me, and it, it, it's it's. I wasn't expecting to get into the uh, philosophy of myself so so early in the conversation, or even at all. But um, yeah, there's something that I've always been drawn to, like kind of like the borders of things. So we were talking about my, my time uh, living in Europe, uh, in the Basque country, in Spain, and I, I just I love being where two cultures mix or two technologies mix, just that there's something about interfaces. I, I grew up in New Jersey, right near the ocean. Um, and, and just, you know, the beach where the land hits the water, there, there's something special. Like I, I, I've been drawn to that my whole life. I, I it, there's just something there for me that I find so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I guess, um, going back to your days as a technologist, you've designed Built, you've tested IoT prototypes that have contributed to the goals of lots of companies in, in Silicon Valley, specifically Orange Silicon Valley. Can you share an example of how these prototypes created real-world impact? Sure. So um, I've had a, a multifaceted career, but uh, I spent about five years uh, in an innovation lab called Orange Silicon Valley. So again, European. Um, Podcast Orange is a European telco. Uh, they had actually just shut down uh, an innovation lab in Silicon Valley in downtown San Francisco. Right. So they are a, fr- a French telco exactly. company. Um, and so I was leading. I was you know the co-founder of the Orange IoT Studio, where we were looking at IoT devices, Internet of Things devices, to uh, understand how they worked and like opportunities for the bigger company. And one of the things. Um, actually kind of going back to that quote uh, where we started, one of the, my big ideas around Internet of Things products is, and just to be clear, like again, just like microelectromechanical systems, you might not have heard this term, but you're, you're inundated with these products, the same with Internet of Things products. So Internet of Things products are like a Fitbit step counter, if you have one of those on your wrist right now, or a Ring video doorbell. Um, so this you know, the step counter, it, you're, you're doing this motion, it translates it to an electrical signal so that you get data on your app. Yeah, te- technolo- technology is such just really lousy at coming up with good marketing names that people <laughs> yeah. can, can relate exactly. to. Yeah, yeah. So I say, IoT, yeah, what the fuck is IoT? Is MEMS, you know, what is MEMS? So we have it in your earbuds at the moment. Exactly. But, uh, you don't well, I mean, for the, yeah. like, I'm a big believer uh, on that note that uh, it's all about what you do and not at all about how you do it. Like mm-hmm. if we could train like, you know, a little fly <laughs> to be inside your ear pods, your AirPods so that you could listen to us, like that's fine. Like nobody needs mems. Like they, they want to be able to hear the podcast. That's it. Um, but the, but that's, that, that's not possible. Like, like there, there, there's, we can get into my philosophy on why now is such a unique time in human history. But um, it, there's a reason, there's a very good reason in my opinion why you couldn't train flies to you know be to to, to function the same way you can like a, a mems uh, acoustic speaker, um, but the the kind of core idea back back to your question about like what have I done at Orange uh, at Orange Silicon Valley? My kind of core idea with Internet of Things devices is uh, historically gathering data was tedious and expensive. Um, I mean we're we're both old enough where like paper and pen, you know, when I was five years old, like that was, that was the way you gather data. Um, and that's really tedious. Like it takes a while to sit there, you know, using your pencil and, and marking stuff down and it's expensive. You know, the, the materials are expensive. People's time is expensive. 
And what's special about Internet of Things products is now it's really easy and really affordable to gather huge amounts of data. So, you know, I've literally looked at the data set from my Fitbit and literally minute by minute mm-hmm. for, you know, 24 hours a day, 60 minutes a day, mm-hmm. uh, 60 minutes an hour, you can see how many steps I took. Right. <laughs> and again, like the reason I have that data is because it's easy and affordable to do so. And you couldn't have done that right. with, with other technologies. And so with Internet of Things products, the, my, my core philosophy was gathering data used to be tedious and expensive. Now it's easy and affordable. So what valuable problems can we solve? Yes, we could totally connect a lamp to, an inter- like, to the internet. Who cares? Like, is that really valuable? And so many IoT companies, especially 10 years ago when Internet of Things products first came out, so many companies were just throwing spaghetti against the wall. Um, you know, the yeah. expression, to see what sticks. Um, and I, I was much more interested in trying to find valuable use cases. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I worked on a prototype with this company called Sutro that, in my opinion, solves a really interesting, valuable problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so great company. If you want to see their website, it's mysutro.com. Um, so the problem that they solve is for those of us who own pools, uh, often about once a year, the pool turns green because yeah. you're, you know that you're supposed to happen, be monitoring the to pool water. at least once or twice. And there you go. quite difficult to sort it out because then it doesn't matter how much chlorine you put into the water, it's not going to easily sort it. And then it's a bio, maybe it's a biological, uh, you know, it's an algae or something like that. So you have to buy anti-algaes and, you know, it's, it's a mess. So how do you solve this? <laughs> so, well, I, you start by asking why. You start by saying, you know, why does this happen? And it, it comes, to me, it comes right back to that core philosophy of gathering data used to be tedious and expensive. Mm-hmm. To walk out to your pool, to get the water sample, yeah. to add yeah. the drops, like, that, like right? that, that is time consuming, it's expensive. Yeah, it, it and, and, and people don't like to do it, right? Oh, I have to go to the pool and do the testing of the pH or whatever it is. Like nobody actually wants to do it, right? It's just uh, exactly bad. you want to enjoy your pool. Your, exactly. your pool is there to, for a swim. It's not yeah. there for you to take water. Samples. Better yet, you want your kids to enjoy the pool, so you can't do something else. <laughs> oh God, that'd be great. I'm not there yet. My 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 daughters are three and one right now. Uh, but yeah, uh, for me, it's the opposite. It's keep them, if they're in the pool, someone's got to be with them at all Out times. Out of the pool, yeah. Exactly. So keep them safe. So how is Sutro doing this? So it's a Internet of Things product. It floats in your pool. It automatically takes a water sample once a day and it evaluates, you know, is your chlorine right? Is your pH right? If there's a problem, you get a notification on your phone. So that rather than, you know, opening the pool after a week of it having that algae bloom and being green, you know, days before that problem emerges, they say, hey, Andre, you better go fix your pool right now and here's how to right. do it. We can send you the chemicals. It, like the whole thing, it, it's a data problem at its core and they solve the data problem. This was developed inside Orange. No, no, no. So again, my, my goal at the Orange IoT Studio, Internet Things Studio, was to try to find valuable problems that demonstrated value for the company. Right. So, so the the core problem. Um, it's funny as we talk about like the layers of technology, and nobody knows the word MEMS or IoT or any of this stuff because they shouldn't. So, 
the core problem for a consumer is this pool problem. Right. In order to solve that problem, the Sutro team had a separate problem, which is great. I have this awesome IoT product that can gather data in the pool, but how do I, I now now they face a communications challenge because a lot of pools are far from the Wi-Fi router. Right. And so that's where Orange as a telco comes in. Sure. Um, and so the project we worked on was just there's there's at the time, this was about 10 years ago. At the time, there was this widespread understanding in the industry of telecommunications that the standard ways of um, building communications products didn't fit IoT. So what I mean by that is most telco use cases were, I'm talking to you on my laptop, we keep talking about our cell phones that people are listening to us on right now. Yeah. Um, phones and laptops are expensive devices, you know, on the order of a thousand dollars. We we because we care about them so much, we charge them all the time. Um, we want to be able to to stream, you know, gigabytes of YouTube videos. It, it's it's a very specific use case. By contrast, Internet of Things products are very cheap, like less than a hundred bucks, you know, in terms of bill of materials cost, and and ideally in terms of the product itself, um, you know. They don't need gigabytes of data, like you know, to measure the temperature, the chlorine, and the pH of your pool. It's like less it's than a, few, a kilobyte. It's a few it's, case, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, exactly. It, it's almost no data. Um, and you know, as opposed to your phone that you love that you're willing to charge every night, there's no way you're going to walk out to your pool and charge your your IoT pool monitor every day. Right. Um, so, which means that the communications technology can't be high, can't consume lots of power. It has to be low power. So. At Orange, we were looking at different solu- communication solutions that um, would fit that bill. So we worked on the specific thing called LoRa, which is L-O-R-A. So it's like lo- L-O, like R-A, long range. So it's long range, low power, low cost, low low amounts of data bandwidth that, you know, if you want to stream a YouTube video would be horrible. But if you have a, an IoT pool monitor that's too far from the Wi-Fi router, it solves their communications problem. So the project that we worked on was we said, you guys have this great Sutro team, you have this great IoT pool monitor, and you're dealing with, you know, how do you get the data into the cloud so that it can get to the people's phones so you can tell Andre, like, fix your pool so your kids can go swimming this weekend. Um, And we've got this cool use case. And so the the nature of the innovation lab, the nature of the project was to be able to show executives, you know, Yes, we're talking about LoRa communications at a high level. What does that actually look like in practice? Here's a great example of a use case. People have their their pools outside. As Orange was considering developing, or actually, they're part of the LoRa consortium. But as they were exploring what this technology could mean, you know, this was a, a an excellent canonical use case where you could actually see how the technology, like there was. Co- there was value created for the consumer. So as you're nodding and you're like, yes, I want my kids to swim and have fun. So the consumer wins. And then Sutro, in order to deliver that value to the consumer, needs a reliable communications technology. And that, that was the piece where, where Orange fit in. So Orange basically has a telecom provider for the, you know, the telecom part of that, that team. And they were a startup. So Sutro is, is a startup Correct. that is developing this, this product called mysutro.com. Um, and, um, you as a product manager, um, you also have to take into consideration the best interest of the company to make money or, you know, it's not just affordable, but it's also going to be sustainable for the company to make 
money with this product in the longer run. My understanding of Flora is that it's a communications um, stack that is not very easy to monetize because it's you know it's a loose network. Most operators don't really manage it so well, and they ha- they actually have a hard time to monetize Flora communications. How how are they actually dealing with this? Are they able to monetize communications with with Laura? So now I'm at the edge of my knowledge because um, I haven't touched Laura in like 10 years. Um, the, the short answer, and I actually would recommend not having this part in the podcast because actually I, I I can give you my answer, but it, I, I'd rather not even to touch on that if that's okay. I was right, that, that, that's, that's fine. I can give you my like informal answer, which is I, Laura is, is more, the better way to think about Laura, I believe is like 4G or 5G. Right. Um, and so, you know, here in America, Verizon does a great job with 5G. T-Mobile does a bad job. Like it, it's not, it, it's more at, at its core, it's just a way of sharing information and like network management is, is very different from um, uh, like the network management piece is a separate, is very like I was focused very narrowly on like, how can we even have an example of a real world use case that right, could be useful right. and okay. valuable? Uh, yeah. Okay, so my question is: um, All these this projects on IoT are are amazing, and they deliver lots of value to to users for sure. But now, on the subject of teaching and mentoring, what key principles do you emphasize when guiding new entrepreneurs, especially in the context of product management and innovation? Sure. Um, so I've been. Like I said, I've, I've been working in entrepreneurship and corporate innovation for about the last 20 years. I've been doing mentoring for about the last 10 years. Um, and probably the last five years has been where I've really just, people keep giving me feedback. Oh, that was super helpful. And you know, I've been writing that down and that, that's what's become this nascent startups project. The, the way I run my mentoring sessions and anyone who's listening to this, you're welcome to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to do a 30 minute mentoring session with you. But I, I always start it the same way. I say, you know, the most important thing right now is this time is your time. Uh, I'm here to help you, and I and you're in charge. So you know, don't don't don't. I don't need any niceties. Like if we're not focusing on solving a problem that's important for you, we're talking about something that's interesting to you. Just cut it off because we only got thirty minutes, and your time is this is your time. Um, and then I add, you know, that said, if we're looking for some structure, what I find to be really helpful is you know, tell me about your startup idea. Let's identify, you know, what are some of the one or two top problems that you're facing and try to come away in the next 30 minutes with an actionable next step. Um, and the, I'd say the common theme that I see with, with challenges with a lot of the folks that I mentor is they really struggle to go from zero to one. So many founders tell me about, you know, once I get to step 11, here's how I'm going to get to 12. And once I get to 100, here's how I'm going to get to 101. And, you know, out of that experience, one of the things that, that's really struck me is um, that nascent stage startups are unique. So I, we keep talking about nascent startups. My definition of a nascent stage startup is you have the kernel of a business idea, you, you have an idea for a tech company, uh, but you have no customers, no product, and no funding. And when that is the case, you know it, you face a really unique set of challenges. And in my experience, most of the entrepreneur advice advice out there, entrepreneurial strategy, it's focused on early stage companies where they have initial customers, product, and funding. And it's talking about, you know, now that you have initial customers, product, and funding, let's talk about scaling. Let's think about exits. And 
for the folks that I mentor at the nascent stage, that's a distraction. You know, it's like the example I try to give is, you know, first, first and foremost, like early stage is different from nascent stage. So you need two different toolkits. If you have customers, you need, you have one set of challenges. If you don't have customers, you have a different set of challenges. So just to be really clear, like what is a nascent stage startup? You know, Andre, thank you for pitching me that great startup idea. Let's be partners. Let's be a founding team. We have an idea. We have no customers, no product, no funding. Now we have a nascent stage startup, the Andre Mike startup project. So that that's you know that's the uh, the essence of a, a nascent stage startup. All right, um, don't don't tempt me. Don't tempt me. Uh. <laughs> I actually had an idea for one yesterday, uh, but but not. Um, so so that that's you know how often that happens. It, it's amazing to me, and I think it's, it's such a wonderful thing that people are like, oh, I have an idea for a business. The challenge that I've seen is you know you have an idea for a business. Now what? What is the best first step? So one thing is identifying the set of challenges. Nascent is different from early, and, and they need unique, unique challenges, unique strategies. A second challenge I've seen, and th- this is back to this issue of not focusing on zero to one, is there's so much talk about you know, the full journey of the startup. And to me, like it might seem like a good idea to think through everything you have to do, but I actually find it's often a distraction. It's like using a map of the entire United States when you're in New York City trying to find the Statue of Liberty, you know, like all you want to know is like, go down that street and take a left. That's it. Um, and you, that, that bigger picture just becomes a big distraction. Like you don't need to think about Chicago. You don't need to think about Texas. You know, just, just focus on literally the first step because it's that, that's all that matters. So, um, all this to say, you know, how do I help folks think through, uh, product management and innovation? At the nascent stage, I really try to focus on the idea that one, their challenges are unique. The rest of the journey is a distraction, and you know how do we really figure out um, what's the essence of the idea? And and maybe I'll end on that for now, which is <coughs> people usually say, "I'm going to build this app," and I say, "Great." So I'm going to build this app essentially implies that there's people out there in pain that have a problem, a really severe pain point that you're going to solve. And, and you're very focused on the solution because you're an engineer, Andre, I'm an engineer. We love building things. Yeah. Take all your ideas for what you want to build, put it on a piece of paper, stick it in a drawer. <laughs> and now all that matters at the nascent stage is f- searching for those people in pain, is, is really trying to understand who has this pain. Because I guarantee you, when you start ta- searching for people in pain, it's you're going to understand. You're you're going to find out that your your initial idea is very fuzzy. It's it's a great starting point. It just can't be the stopping point. You can't just say I have a I have a sense of who I'm going after. They're just like me. And it's like no, like you really need to know down to you know do they wear glasses or not? You know what color hair do they have? Like 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 who is this human being that has pain? So let's go back to your nascent. Uh, um, nascent um, startups, startup um, project, and I'm calling it project for now because I know. Might I, become, I call it a might, project also. I, I very a, much think of this as a project. Might become a book, but might become yeah more than that. But um, and, and try to bridge this with your uh, current role um, because we know that a, a lot of what works for the startup theory uh, for independent projects. 
is very difficult to bring to inside the corporation and to innovation in, in, to innovate inside corporations. Very different animal, very different kind of territory. So you've had hold, um, you've you've held roles that blend technical expertise with business acumen, such as you know your current role now at as lead product manager at LG Nova. So how do you balance these two worlds, and what advice would you give? professionals striving to bridge the gap between engineering, business strategy, and corporate innovation, because that's actually the setting where you are at the moment. And yeah. by the way, LG Nova is, um, I guess, LG, the South Korean company, Correct. laboratories in for the U.S. market. Correct. So, um, yeah, a couple of different pieces. So, nascent startups project, this is a side project of mine, something I'm very yeah, passionate about. Absolutely. Working on uh, working on it for about five years. Um, the way it it started as a book, it's kind of evolved into a newsletter and a podcast. So if you're listening to this, you can go to nascentstartups.com and sign up for the newsletter, or the podcast. If you if you have the question, you know, you have an idea for a tech startup, now what? That, that's all we talk about. So come, come join the community. Um, so nascentstartups.com, that's one project. My Current role is I'm lead product manager at LG Nova. Nova is, you know, LG is LG Electronics. So the way I like to frame, like, what do we do at LG Nova? When people think of LG, they typically think of televisions, refrigerators. Our job at Nova is to come up with brand new business ideas that have nothing to do with TVs or fridges. So you can go to lgnova.com and see, you know, different areas that we're interested in, uh, healthcare, clean tech. There's lots there. Um, so my job is to, again, try to help create these new businesses. And you know this idea of like how do you blend technical expertise with business acumen, especially in a product role, especially in innovation, um, it's been really an interesting journey for me because I think when, when we talk about product, um, most people and, and most product roles are focused on established products, on established businesses. When I get back to this kind of core idea with nascent startups, if you have customers or you don't have customers, you have two wildly different sets of problems. Mm -hmm. So for most folks working in product, they have customers. You know, you're, you're at a company by definition uh, that has enough money to pay you, and they're getting using the, the money that they're getting is from the customers. Uh, it's very rare and very special, and I, I feel honestly very privileged to get to be at LG Nova. Where we are under the you know research and development budget at the highest level in, the, in a loose sense, where you know we're investing money to try to create new businesses. It, it, it's not a normal product role. So for folks that have a normal product role, my my, um, my advice is like you, you have a you have reasonable sense of who your customers are. You have a reasonable sense of what your business goals are, like what product features you want to ship to to increase revenue. Honestly, like that's not my expertise. I, I haven't really <laughs> worked in those roles. Um, it, it's at the nascent stage, um, and I guess the, it, another way to think about this is at the nascent stage, it's all about exploration. Whereas with established businesses, it's much more about execution. Mm -hmm. um, and so, when you're trying to explore, one of the the key different, like, a huge difference between you know exploring at the nascent stage versus executing with an established business is at the nascent stage, you want to build as little as possible. You want to simplify as much as possible. You're, you're constantly trying to do less 
and you're totally okay when things break. Um, you were and, telling and, about the story where we have created this Google Form product. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, we're one of the projects I was working on recently. Um, you know, I, I, I'm lead product manager. I work with a bunch of engineers. I built the product myself for free using Google Forms, <laughs> like zero hours of engineering time. That to me was a huge win. Um, because if it, that product were successful, for sure we could bring in the engineers and build a much more robust product. And are, are you are you testing that the Google Forms has a you know some kind of MVP for the product or uh, what is question. that? How, how do you, how do you get value from that Google Forms? Um, so I, I, because it's uh, LG work, I can't get into the details of what the specific product is, but um, you use the word MVP and. One of the things that I want people to do at the nascent stage is to use a very different set of thinking about things. Okay. Um, so to me, uh, two of the, the most common terms that I hear about startups are minimum viable product, MVP, and product market fit. Um, I believe that in order to have a minimum viable product, in order to have product market fit, you have to have customers by definition. You know what? What is a minimum viable product? It is a product that is meets the minimum requirements of a customer. If you have no customers, logically, <laughs> just, just like logically thinking, you cannot have a minimum right. viable product. Like, it, like you, it, it's, a, it's not possible. So the goal of the Google form um, is just that we could all point to the same thing and say, you know, we've been whiteboarding, we've been making slides, we've been talking about people in pain, mm-hmm. and we, we think that we might want to solve their pro- their problems, their pain points with a product that could look like this. Mm. And just and let's all actually use it. And so we all got to use the Google form and we said, you know what? This actually it, it doesn't seem very compelling. And then we threw it away. That's that's what normal looks like. That's what good looks like. Um, it, it was by no means like, yeah, I, when people say to me, minimum viable product, I say that's an early stage term. That's not a nascent stage term. The value of building anything... You, my first step, my first advice to people that I employ with my own work, do not build anything. What, what matters is searching for people in pain. I'm an engineer. I know that building feels good. I, I think about it like eating candy. Uh, you know, like I love eating candy and I still eat candy, but I know it's not healthy for me. So like I'll have a piece of candy, but I'm not going to have like a meal of chocolate. Um, <laughs> speaking of our kids, let me tell you, my three-year-old loves to have a meal of chocolate if I'd let her. Um, so I'm, I, I'm not like hypercritical when people build stuff, but it, it's just this awareness that like, you know, you're, you're not really <laughs> helping things out. So, so the, 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 this example with this Google form product, quote unquote product was just to be able to, to say, we're talking about building something. Let's all be able to point to something in, in the real world. That's like the simplest possible version. So I'm all about simple. I'm all about cheap. Um, Google form. Very simple, can't get cheaper than free, <laughs> you know. Um, and so th- that that was the the value of that product. My question is: is is that enough for you and your team? Has product people to understand? Is, is there value in in this prototype? In this prototype, as you know, yeah. Alberto Savoia, uh, you know, using. Is yeah, it enough? Prototype for is a, a good word. Prototyping, right? So, is it is this enough for us to decide? Should we move on to the next stage? Should we build, you know, a more advanced prototype? And what's exactly. your, you know, what's your 
ticket point? What's your um, level of confidence and threshold towards the next stage? Yeah. Um, no, I, I think it, this this was it got the job done. Like it, it, it's we all looked at this and we said this stinks. Let's throw it away. So it was more a, a gut feeling. Yeah, this doesn't really work. This doesn't do the job. So let's move on. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, I mean, there's basically like a, a couple outcomes, right? So one is you build the simplest, cheapest thing and you say, even looking at this, this isn't even in the ballpark. We don't like it. You know, mm. let's just stop. You could say, oh, this thing solves the problem in the worst possible. It solves the problem barely. It's horrible. Right. And now we want to like, you know, iterate and let, let's bring in the engineers. Let's make this much smoother. <laughs> we don't need, you know, okay. 10 different sub menus. We could do this with like, you know, a dynamic setup. Like, like that, that's, that, that's a good outcome. Mm-hmm. And then the third out- outcome is somewhere in between where you say, eh, we tried to do it as, as cheaply as possible. The result is muddy. We're not clear. And so maybe we need to, we do, it is worth investing a little bit more time to build something a little bit fancier to, to make that, to be able to get to that decision point. But in this case, like the thing I think about with all this is to get very because we were getting philosophical earlier. One of like my big ideas with all of this work with all of the startups, um, I'm very very interested in pain and I'm very interested in entropy. And so people in pain, pain is something that a specific person has, and entropy is you know the natural state of the world is chaos. Um, and it's not a bad thing or a good thing. It just is like we can get into, I can talk about entropy for a while, but the, the, the most important thing I'd say about entropy is the world is filled with problems and that, and as an entrepreneur, that's great. Like, like, you know, why are people in pain because of entropy, because the natural state of the world is things don't just magically work. And so I think at, with a startup, what we're trying to do is navigate this entropy where we want, we, there's problems in the world, there's chaos in the world, there's pain in the world, and we're trying to find lots of like excruciating, valuable pain. And at the same time, we're fighting entropy because to solve that pain with a business, with a product, is also really, really hard, and it usually doesn't work because of because that same entropy. And so if you have that mentality, then you build as little as possible because entropy says most of the time it's not going to work, and that's okay. So let's get a little bit of uh, actionable advice. So let's say one of our listeners has an idea for a tech product and they want, you know, they want to build a startup. They want maybe to do the product. So what, what's your advice to to this, this guy, this girl that, that wants to build um, something, right? A, A product and, or a piece of tech. And sure. they really don't know where to start. Um, what should they do? Phenomenal. Um, go to nascentstartups.com and okay. sign up and, and join the community is, is the short answer. Um, that, that question of you have an idea for a tech business, now what? Like, what's the first step? That, that's exactly what I'm narrowly focused on. Um, so I think it's a great question. It's a question that I'm really excited about. It's a question uh, that I've thought deeply about and tried to solve for the last 20 years. You know, you have an idea for a tech business. Now what? Yeah. So let, let me give you a specific example. So let's say because you are you know working for a consumer product, um, you have this idea to build a single wash uh, dishwasher, right? So you can only 
um, do a single washing of one piece of dish, uh, a little bit like an air dryer, but for dishes and and stuff, right? You don't want to put everything inside the, the tray. You just want it to be fast. You put it there, then yep. it's done, it, and it goes to dry out. So is this a stupid idea? Or, or how can I... Yet how can I know this actually makes any sense? Sure. Um, so I, I'm very happy to play the game of I have an idea for a tech startup. Uh, it definitely would help if you actually, um, if you want to use that, we can totally use it. Um, but if, if it's something that you care about, it's helpful. The, 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 the thought process, how would you go if I sure, were an sure. entrepreneur? So I'm trying to answer that. So maybe I'm being too long-winded. Um, but basically, I, I see kind of two key questions. So first question is, I have an idea for a tech startup. Now what? Right. And then the second question, and that's and then the answer is like, well, it's a really complicated long journey. And so the second question is, okay, if it's a really complicated long journey, then my best first step is trying to figure out the odds of success. You know, that that back to this Google form example, how can we gate as and make a decision as quickly and cheaply as possible whether this is an opportunity worth pursuing or whether it's a distraction? Um, and so the way I, I always like to think in jokes, the joke that kind of like encapsulates this idea, if you remember, I don't know how long ago, 20 years ago, there was the movie with Jim Carrey and Lauren Holly, Dumb and Dumber. Yeah. Jim Carrey says, you know, what are the chances of a guy like me being with a girl like you? Not good, <laughs> like one in a hundred? And she goes, eh, more like one in a million. He thinks about it and says, so you're saying there's a chance. And it's funny because he's dumb. He doesn't understand the difference between one in a hundred and one in a million. And what's sad for me and frustrating as a founder is I know personally, I know so many of the teams I've advised, we have no sense if we're chasing a one in a hundred opportunity or one in a million distraction. And so what's the nascent startups idea? I, I don't have all the answers yet, but I, I do feel like I have two good questions. So one is I have an idea for a tech business. Now what? And the answer to that is another question, which is, how can you figure out as quickly and cheaply as possible, ideally $100, 100 days, um, whether you're chasing a one in a hundred opportunity or a one in a million distraction? And so from there, I, I basically have three, again, Nascent Startups started as a book and now we're transitioning to this podcast and newsletter, but I basically have three main sections um, to my thinking the anti-playbook exploration and execution. So first thing is anti-playbook. So there's a ton of startup advice that's really, really relevant if you have an early stage startup with customers, product, and funding. And in my opinion, that when you're at the nascent stage and you have an idea, but you don't have, you have no customers, no product, no funding, it, those lessons don't apply. So the anti-playbook is just articulating what not to do and why. So you know earlier you had mentioned minimum viable product why is why should you not try to create a minimum viable product? Because you have no customers. Minimum viable product means that it's viable to the customers. And so until you get a customer, you can't create an MVP. So no minimum viable product is in the anti-playbook. Step one, exploration is two, and then three is execution. All right. There, there will be a line of thought where, you know, because it's a hardware product, you, you would have to kind of prototype it somehow to see at least if, if it works, if it does it make any sense? Sure. So, we want, so now we want to take the nascent startups playbook and apply it to this idea of a, a single dish dishwasher, or if if you want. Sure. Uh, I mean, it, it, do you have an idea, like an actual idea for a startup? I'd, this I'd is, love this to is this is actually an, an actual idea from uh, from one of our projects. It's a single washing 
uh, dishwasher. Yeah, and this is I didn't I didn't make it up. Uh, well, I, I did kind of, but uh, but it, it, sure. it wasn't born for the for the sake of the podcast. So I'm just Perfect. using it as an example. So we can take this this set of three steps: anti playbook, exploration, execution, and, and apply it to the single dish dishwasher. All right, anti playbook, no product market fit, no minimum viable product, no partnerships. There's like at least twenty things in there. Right. Don't worry about it. Destroy Explor- this, all the sacred cows. Not not destroy. Wait, just wait. wait. Like wait. <laughs> like, like my my goal with nascent startups is is I want to provide an on ramp to people that want to do lean startup. If you read the introduction to the book Lean Startup, which to me is like the Bible for startups, mm-hmm. it basically says our customers stopped liking our product and our investors stopped giving us funding. Here's how we overcame those challenges. If you have challenges with customers, product, and funding, go use Lean Startup. If you don't have customers, you have no customers, no product, no funding, I don't think that that's the right tool. Right, um, got it. So all that to say, you, so let, let's let's dig into this idea. One thing, but every time I work with, I always say, do you have a name for your idea? It really helps. It doesn't matter what the name is, but just helps to facilitate the conversation. So do, do you have a name for this single dish dishwasher yeah, idea? Yeah, single washi, something like that. Single washi, love single washi. Great. So, so you, Andre, are this founder. You have an idea for a, a tech business. It's not really a tech business because it's you know washing dishes. But sure, maybe it's an IoT. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to the Internet of Things. It's it's an internet connected, even worse. Um, single dish dishwasher. Single people don't have lots of uh, lots of dishes to to clean, but they might want to to clean. They, they want to know when it's done. They want to monitor the status of yeah. the dishes. Whatever. Yeah. So okay. So. Step so step one is what not to do. Step two is exploration. So let let's try to really understand this idea much more deeply. So again, when people come to me almost all the time, they say, I want to build a dishwasher. And so what we're gonna do is I call it disideation. We're gonna take your idea and break it into two parts. Your your product, your solution, write it on a piece of paper. You want to build a single dish dishwasher, stick it in a drawer. We don't need it right now. What right. does matter is what your is the implication. Um it, it, it just kind of because we're going back and forth with our backgrounds as an electrical engineer. One of the things that I find so exciting is the ability to identify things that you can never see. I've never seen an electron. I never will see an electron. My eyes don't work that way, but I can envision them. And so, in this world of business, one of the things that I'm really interested in is talking about things that are super important, super present, and completely invisible. And in your idea of single washi is this invisible pain that you believe is out there. And that's what matters. So, we, so ex- exploration essentially is let's search for people in pain. What in my experience, especially when you're constrained by time and budget, and you know where a hundred dollars in a hundred days does matter to you, it really is about getting out um, into the world. As, you know, Steve Blank said, "quote unquote," like get out of the building, getting out of the building and trying to find these people in pain. And so, you know, literally, I would say to you, like, let's go search for pain. Uh, you say you have kids and you're married. I'm married with kids. Where are these single people that you want to solve? That, that you want to solve their pain? Um, go find them. I don't care if you go to like a soccer stadium because you want to like <laughs> find the dudes there. It, it doesn't like, but yeah. you gotta. If you there's a lot that can go wrong, but I can guarantee you, if you stay at home and you build single washi, that's a hundred percent failure rate. So go um, or whatever. I should say a one in a million failure rate uh, or. One in a million success rate. 
Um, so all that to say, exploration, let's go try to talk to these people and deeply understand their pain. That's how you're going to spend the majority of your 100 days and $100. And then uh, the last piece, uh, I wrote execution, but actually is evaluation. Um, uh, so again, anti-playbook, exploration, evaluation. The last step on evaluation is you know, pause. Uh, one of the things that I feel like people so often don't do, and one of the big things I want to help entrepreneurs with at the nascent stage is, is having a definite moment mm. to, to take your founder hat off. And I, would, I call it putting on your investor hat. Mm. At the nascent stage, you have one investor. It's yourself. It's you, yeah. the founder. Right. And you get to decide um, whether you want to continue with your project. And it's really, really hard as a founder to, to know when to switch. So just because I need to pick some arbitrary threshold, and I think the best way to do that is with time and money, you say, I've got 100 days, $100 to quote-unquote invest in my project. And now as an investor, I'm going to take off my founder hat, and I'm going to say, is it worth continuing? Do I have reason to believe I'm chasing a one in a hundred opportunity? And, and to be clear, one in a hundred opportunity still stinks. It means like 99% of the time you're going to fail. <laughs> um, and so by no means am I saying you're guaranteed success, but I'm saying like, if you're, if you could even feel like you're at on a, onto an opportunity that's one in a hundred, then like, great, keep going. If you've gone to all these soccer games and all these guys that single guys that you've spoken to say single washi, like, you know, first of all, you'd never tell them the product, but you'd say, I want to understand how you deal with dishes. Just right. talk to me about your dishes. They said, if every guy that you have, that you meet says dishes, I only ever eat, t- take takeout. I love McDonald's. I love Kentucky fried chicken. Like, right. Leave me alone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I don't have the dishes problem. Exactly. And yeah. so it doesn't, at that point, I, I can't guarantee you that single washi is a one in a million distraction, but you, or I should say it this way. You have good reason to believe that you're chasing a one in a million distraction. Mm-hmm. Maybe somebody else will come up with a better way to, to f- search for those people in pain. And they, they, it's not necessarily that's a bad idea. But the, the real question is, is this the right idea for you, the founder, right now? All and right, if I, you I, can't I, find people in pain, let it go. Let it go. And I, I was really curious because in your outline uh, that you were that you nicely sent me before uh, the podcast, you advise against moving to Silicon Valley, but you actually suggest visiting. Um, yes. So what advantages and disadvantages do you see in being physically located in tech hubs like Silicon Valley for nascent startups? And here, I think, let's focus in nascent startups. So no product, yep. no customers, no funding. It's a great question. So... Uh, as we mentioned, uh, I'm living in Portland, Oregon. I spent right. over 10 years uh, in Silicon Valley. I love the San Francisco Bay Area. To be clear, like Silicon Valley, for those of you in Europe, if you're not sure where it's physically located, starts basically in San Francisco and it goes down to San Jose. So if you look at the map of the US, there's this beautiful, gorgeous bay surrounded by hills. It's perfect weather, in my opinion, all the time. I love the place geographically. Um, the reason I'm here. And the reason I would strongly advise to people not to relocate there is cost of living. It's too expensive. Um, if you are, if, if nascent startups resonates with you, that's because 100 days and $100 resonates with you. The, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, it was affordable to live in the Bay. And that was one of the really, really exciting things because 
again, like my definition of an ascent startup is you have an idea, no customers, no product, no funding. And I would, I consider it a project of exploration constrained by minimal resources. And the really, really sad, unfortunate thing about the Bay is it no longer enables people with minimal resources to be there. And we can get into housing policy and all these things that I care about. And I am so upset <laughs> that I can't afford to live in the Bay with my wife and two kids. Um, but the fact of the matter is that if you if minimal resources is a constraint for you, then going to this extraordinarily expensive place uh, is you're going to spend more money on housing and food than you will on your startup, which is not the point. So there, there is this minimal um, resources constraint, and the bay used to be it used to not be that bad, and now it's in my opinion a deal breaker. So that's why you shouldn't live there. From my advice, the flip side though is. The thing that I love about the startup culture in the Bay is it, it's extremely unique. Um, I've, I grew up in New Jersey. I've lived in Washington, D.C. We were talking about my time in Europe. Mm -hmm. There is nowhere I've ever been that is so conducive and positive and encouraging to people with, with startup ideas. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know where exactly it comes from. I'll give you my theory. Um, so the history of San Francisco... It, you know, in the San Francisco 49ers football team in 1849, you know, people came there in the gold rush. And in my mind, you know, I think of, you know, the gold rush. You, you think of people like you and me, we're talking at a blue bottle coffee shop at the ferry building in San Francisco. You're pitching me your startup and pitching you my startup. We both think we've got great ideas and one of us might strike gold. And so, you know, it's in my interest to a degree to just help you out. Oh, you got that startup. You should talk to my buddy. He, he's doing something that could help you. And you do the same for me. And that, that ethos of um, fostering each other's projects, of supporting each other. Like one of the coolest things that happened to me that like, I, I talk about this often because it was so profound. Um, when I first got to business school, I, I had this transportation startup. I entered in a bunch of contests to, to pitch one of the judges said, look, you didn't win, but I really like what you're trying to do. I've, I've got extra office space. You know, you and your team can come and work for my office for the summer. I got free office space for six people in downtown San Francisco on a handshake. We didn't sign an NDA. We like the guy was just like, come and go as you please. I'll let the secretary know. And like, I was coming from Washington, DC. If I wanted to do that, I would have had to, it would have taken six months of paperwork <laughs> before I was able to even, you know, step foot in and call a space my space. And so that to me um, was so profound that, that that that's like such a great example of this, you know, everybody's positive. Everyone's trying to help each other in many ways. And I've never seen that anywhere else. Um, and it, it's a big part of what breaks my heart <laughs> about having left there. Um, so there, there is something, this is why I say, you know, visit, but don't live there. You can't afford, if minimal constraints of $100 is important to you, you can't live there. But there is something to going to some meetups, to going to some coffee shops and hearing people pitch. Like literally, like I can't tell you how many times I've been at a coffee shop or at a, like I was it's just almost, at. Uh, uh, yeah. an, an anthropological experience, right? You go there, go to the coffee shop and just hear people pitch. Totally. Like I, I was 
so one of the nice things with LG is I am that our headquarters is in Santa Clara next to San Jose. And I was just down there at one of my favorite uh, restaurants, Madras Cafe. And I was listening to these two women next to me talk about their startups. And I like, I, I, I like turned around and I go, I got to be part of this conversation. They're like, please come join us. And we had this like lovely <laughs> dinner. And that's, that, that has happened to me so many times there. And that, that is the exception. Both that I heard the conversation and that I was, they were cool with me joining them. And that, 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 I mean, I, by no means am I guaranteeing anyone listening to this. If you go to San Francisco, you could, you could do that. But I also will say back to this one in a million versus one in a hundred, there is a one in a hundred chance that'll happen to you in San Francisco. And having spent now almost two years in Portland, it's a, more of a one in a million chance happening here. Hmm. Yeah. So look, Mike, uh, it's been a real pleasure uh, having you on the show, uh, your insights, your experiences. I think they're truly phenomenal and valuable to, to listeners and anyone listening. Um, but before we wrap up, uh, where can people find more about your work and follow your journey? Of, of course, people can follow your newsletter and podcast. They only, the only thing they need to do is to go to uh, nascentstartups.com. All right. So that's so. nascentstartups.com. And is is there a book coming in anytime um, soon? So I'm taking the content of the book, so that outline that I sent you, and I'm going to be publishing it as newsletters and podcasts. So, um, okay, so but if- the, the, the bigger thing I'd say is right now um, we're recruiting our first cohort. So I have a, a partner on this journey, a guy named Adam, Mm-hmm. Um, who's worked with Techstars and all these different um, startup incubators. And I think we have four people as of today <laughs> signed up to be as part of our first cohort. And so anyone, you know, it's going to be, I'm sure, ongoing. So anybody who is interested in these ideas, nascent startups are different from early stage startups, you know, anti-playbook, execution, evaluation, come come join us. I, I, I think we have, we don't have all the answers, but we definitely have some interesting questions and we'd love to help you figure out as quickly and cheaply as possible, are you chasing a one in a hundred opportunity or a one in a million distraction? All right. So this might work as a virtual startup accelerator. People can exactly. go out, they can do mentoring <laughs> sessions. And that- I'm laughing because you're, you're right. That's, that, 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 I didn't think of it that way, but you're totally right. This is a virtual startup accelerator. Okay. All right. Thank you again, Mike, for joining us today. And of course, to our listeners, thanks for tuning to the Productize podcast. Don't forget to subscribe for more conversations with minds sharing technology and shaping the world has been owed with innovation. Until next time. And okay, this is it. Thank you. Thanks so much.